Welcome to Credo, with me, Father Andrew Eben, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. Last week, we were looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. And this week, we turn to the second part of the article on the Holy Spirit, which reads as follows. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets? So this week's episode is really all about the filioque. What is the filioque? I hear you cry. It is uh, the word, the Latin word, at the end of the first line of today's article, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So those English words, and the Son, which in Latin is the single word filioque. Now, if I am completely honest, I have not been especially looking forward to this discussion, I am sure that there are learned and nimble-minded people who can make the filioque interesting and engaging, but I'm also pretty sure that I am not one of them. No one is going to message me tomorrow and say, Father Andrew, let's have another half hour on the filioque. But it's such an important topic in the history of the church that we can't really avoid it. So I will do my best to at least make it comprehensible, if not engaging and interesting. So, what is the big deal with the filioque? Well, that word filioque, or and the son, is not in the original Nicene Creed. It is not in the creed agreed at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, nor in the revised version adopted by the Council of Constantinople in 381. It is a later edition. Why is that important? It is important because this edition is not accepted by the Eastern Orthodox churches. As I'm sure you all know, the Eastern Orthodox churches split from the Catholic Church in the year 1054, a schism which persists to this day. Now, the schism was certainly not about the filioque, uh, but the filioque was a factor in the schism, and it certainly remains a prominent theological difference between Eastern Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church down to the present day. So then we have to ask when and why was this addition of the filioque made to the creed? And I'm afraid there isn't really a single and simple answer to that question, but I will do my best. Let's start by looking at the history. Um, there are various early versions of the filioque wording. By early, I mean the 5th century, and Pope St. Leo I, as the Catechism tells us, had officially approved or confessed the filioque in Rome in the year 447, so pretty early. As to when it becomes actually part of the creed, well, that's a little later. You could say it starts with the Council of Toledo in Spain in the year 589, which was a council particularly directed against the Arian heresy. That is, a council concerned to have a clear profession of the doctrine of the Trinity. This then brings us to the why part of the question, why the filioque? I mentioned before that the Church often defines theology and dogma reactively. That is, someone comes up with a misunderstanding or a heresy and the Church reacts 
by giving a correct definition. The fact that we have a Nicene Creed at all is really because the Council of Nicaea was called in large part as a reaction against the heresy of Arianism, a heresy which gets its name from a rogue theologian called Arius. Now, Arius uh, argued his case at the Council of Nicaea, but he was denounced as a heretic and sent into exile. So what can we say about Arianism, the teaching of Arius? Well, Arianism, to, to put it very simply, well, really, it mucked about with the Trinity and mucked about with the Incarnation. Arianism uh, basically demoted Jesus. It taught that Jesus was not God in the same way as God himself. Uh, it taught that Jesus was a kind of lesser God who had been created by God in time, like, well, like everything else. So Jesus is not fully God, if you like, which then means that the Trinity is not one God, but more than one God, a kind of polytheism. And I've apologize, this is a kind of cartoon version, but, but, but I hope you get the gist of it. One problem for Arianism is the Gospel of John, which explicitly rules out Jesus being created in time like everything else. So just to recap, John says, opening word to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. So there we have Jesus the eternal word, professed in the creed as born of the Father before all ages and begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, so not made. Now, here's where things start to get a little complicated. In order to combat Arianism, the creed defines the relationship between the Father and the Son as a relationship uh, which is one of eternal generation. So, in theological terms, the generation of the Son is eternal, and it must be an eternal in order for God the Father to always be the Father. There cannot be a time when the Son was not the Son, otherwise, the argument goes, there would not have been a time when the Father was not Father. God the Father does not become the Father at a certain point. He always is God the Father. Therefore, the Son always is the Son. Therefore, the Son is eternally begotten or generated. Okay? But that, bear with me, that now has consequences for the generation, or what we call the procession of the Holy Spirit. Because for the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit and not just another son, his procession must be different from the Father's generation of the Son. It cannot be exactly the same because there are not two sons. The Son, eternally generating from the Father, is what makes him the Son. If the Spirit was generated or proceeded in the same way, then he would be another type of Son. And the way that difference is expressed is via the filioque, proceeding from the Father and the Son. So, once we have the filioque, we have the Father eternally generating the Son and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And Bob's your uncle, we have defended the Trinity against Arius. Okay, now if we turn to Scripture, 
the Gospel of John can again be helpful here. Jesus in the Gospel of John speaks of the Holy Spirit in this way. He speaks of the Counselor whom I shall send to you from the Father. Even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. So this point that Jesus makes that he sends the Spirit from the Father. There's something he's doing. So there seems to be some kind of joint action here of both Jesus and the Father. And then again, uh, a little later on in John, if I do not go away, the Counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Again, I will send him. So uh, the distinct involvement of Jesus the Son in the descent of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, just one other scriptural illustration there's a beautiful symbolic depiction of this procession you might in fact call it a symbolic depiction of the filioque in the book of revelation the apocalypse when saint john describes the holy spirit as the river of the water of life and he says of the angel then he showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb So the Holy Spirit flowing, or proceeding, we might even say, from both the throne of God and of the Lamb. So if you like a scriptural uh, imaging of the filioque. But let's now go back to what happens in the church historically, uh, 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 the when and the why of the filioque. Well, the battle against Darius is partly played out in the Council of Toledo, which adds the filioque to the creed in order to clarify and strengthen the definition of the Holy Trinity. That creed then in turn becomes part of the liturgy of the Mass. And as part of the liturgy of the Mass, it spreads across Western Christianity. So we start in Spain, we spread across Gaul, spreading across the Christianity of Western Europe, or the Western Empire, if you like, and eventually being officially adopted by Rome in the year 1014. But here's the thing, it was never officially adopted by the Eastern Orthodox churches. Well, I say never, but you could say it was adopted by the Eastern churches at the Council of Florence in 1439, where in fact agreement on the filioque was reached on the 8th of June, 1439. However, The ecumenical patriarch, Joseph II, who was leading the eastern side, died two days later on the 10th of June, 1439, and that agreement was never validated. So close, yet so far apart. I mentioned Western Christianity and the Western Empire, and of course that division between the Eastern and the Western Empire of Rome is also important. Because the filioque controversy is not just about theology, it is also about language and politics. Scholars, for example, recognise that the Latin word procedit or proceed is not the same as the Greek word in the Nicene Creed, which is ekporovomenon. Now that Greek word ekporovomenon also means proceeds, but the two words, Latin and Greek, have slightly different origin and a slightly different referential frame. They don't refer to exactly the same thing. So if, as a philosopher or a theologian, you are thinking about the filioque question in Greek, you might well come up with a slightly different answer than you would do if you are thinking in Latin.
And then again, behind that difference, we can also add, there are geopolitical differences. In the Roman Empire of the 3rd century, for example, Greek is the dominant language of the eastern half of the empire, Latin the dominant language of the West. And by the 4th century, there is a clear distinction between those two halves of the empire, a distinction we might add that's made worse by the formal split in the empire after the death of Constantine, early 4th century, when the empire really does become two, and the Western side pretty quickly collapses. And that division in empire and the growth of separate languages and cultures over the subsequent centuries is also then part of the background to the Great Schism in 1054. However, um, we really need to get back to the creed. How do we sum this up? Well, I guess we can say that the filioque are, is a kind of additional bulwark, like a flying buttress added to a tower, uh, a bulwark defending against heretical views of the Incarnation and of the Trinity. So by way of conclusion, let's just then get back to what the Creed says about the Holy Spirit and how this article finishes. We have two further statements, both of them you will no doubt be delighted to learn, pretty uncontroversial. Firstly, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, uh, this is just emphasizing, if you like, that there is no disparity of devotion uh, in the Trinity and to the persons of the Holy Trinity. We don't adore one more as being more God than another. And then finally, who has spoken through the prophets, the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets? So this is part of our understanding of how God reveals himself to us. The Catechism describes how we see that protest revelation in the Old Testament. So the Catechism says, when the Church reads the Old Testament, she searches there for what the Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets, wants to tell us about Christ. Jesus present in the Old Testament revealed by the Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself says that the scriptures, by which he means, of course, the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures bear witness to me. Jesus says that Moses wrote of me. And what he means by that is the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, which were believed in Jewish tradition to have been written by Moses himself. And those first five books speak of Jesus Christ. They do so because their author was inspired by the Holy Spirit. All sacred scripture speaks of Christ. We should never forget this, not least because some people in our day struggle with the Old Testament, but all sacred scripture speaks of Christ, both the Old and the New, and it does so because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit who reveals the Son to us. And that then brings us to the end of the Creed's article on the Holy Spirit and to the end of this week's episode. So thank you for listening. I am sorry there was so much theological controversy, but do please join me next week when we move on to the last two, the very last two articles of the Creed. May God bless you all, and may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make into the beauties of the Catholic faith. Amen.